The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Genesis chapter 6, starting with verse 1, said, When men came to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with, with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great men's wickedness on earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made, on, made man on the earth, and, that, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I'm going to go ahead and stop there just for now. Because before I, want, before I get into the good news, I want to really look back at what happened. What caused God to grieve, or in, in some translations it says regret, that he created mankind. What happened so horribly, terribly, badly, that God had decided, I regret that I created you? Well, as we look through this scripture, we find some of probably the most controversial verses there are in the scripture that talk about divine beings and marrying between divine beings and, and earthly beings and who were the Nephilites and were they really these hero offspring, kind of a Greek mythological type offspring. All these, all these very difficult concept, concepts that we find in here that really weigh down the actual purpose of this scripture. And it's very, very easy for me to get tied up in all of the things and the stuff of the controversy of this passage and forget the point. So I'm going to go through the, the controversy very quickly. I'm just going to provide you with some ideas. You can make your own decision. But at the end, the lesson is still the same. That's the important part. Please, whatever you do, do not get stuck on, were there really other divine beings? Were there really angels marrying men? Were there really these, these mythological creatures that were heroes on earth that were the offspring of these, these relationships? Please, don't get hung up on that. Okay? Because really what it comes down to is we don't know for sure. We don't know. I spent all week reading through commentary after commentary after commentary after commentary, trying to wrap my mind around the, the vastness of this problem. And essentially what it came down to is the point is still the same regardless of what you believe. Okay? So, to set the scene for you, this is taking place, this conversation um, where God is, is, is about to tell Noah what he's going to do to the earth. It takes place, some commentaries believe, about 1,500 years after Adam. Okay, If you count through the generations, if you don't believe that all the generations are recorded, then it could be as much as 20,000 years. Nobody knows. Okay, We just have what's in the scripture. That's not the point. The point is, is there was a large chunk of time that had passed since Adam until Noah. And in that chunk of time, humanity, hum, humankind itself had become so degraded 
so perverse, so sinful, that it caused God to remorse, to regret that he had created man. Things had gone absolutely horrible. The one thing that God told man to do that they were doing well at this point in time is God said, go be fruitful and multiply. They did that wonderfully. Okay? But even that one thing that they did right, they turned it into a perverse action by engaging in relationships that were not intended by God. The one thing they did right was actually wrong. That was it. And God looked and he saw that there was nobody righteous left on the earth. And he talks about these sons of God okay, and these daughters of man. Now, what are the sons of God and the daughters of man? Real quick, going through it. Okay, ready? Idea number one, probably the most highly accepted one, that the sons of God were fallen angels. Okay, or some sort of divine being in God's counsel that came to earth and fell in love with or had, was, was essentially just interested in the daughters of man. Okay? And through this relationship, they conceived kids, okay? which may or may not be the Nephilites. Could just be these men of, here, these men of, of, uh, of name, as they're called in the scripture. We don't actually know that for sure. But we do know that there was a relationship happening that was not supposed to be happening. Okay? They could have been angels. Now, there are other places in the scripture that talk about these other divine beings. Okay? There's some in Job, some in Psalms, some in Daniel, where they are referred to. And so this is a possibility. Now, another thing that we have to consider with this is that Genesis is written very carefully. The whole scripture is written very, very carefully. Um, if you look at the, how the writers wrote it in, in sections of seven, with verses of seven, with lines and poems, and just the way it is very creatively articulated, we know that there are very few things that were not written very purposefully in the scripture. So we know that there is a reason that this is written the way that it is. Now, if we were to take the literal translation, which I think this is probably the most literal translation, is that there were these divine beings in relationship with these earthly beings, okay? There is an argument that that is true, okay? Because it was written specifically like that, and just as we see for the rest of the Genesis epic, okay, that it was supposed to be that way. Regardless, doesn't matter, okay? Relationship that, that happened that wasn't supposed to happen. Second idea, okay? The sons of God could have been kind of dynastic rulers of the time, okay? Just as they do in Thailand and many other countries where they... Um, they, they deify their leader. Okay? They deify the people that are in leadership over them. So they're kings, they're princes, they're royalty. It's possible that these people had been deified, seen as, as deities, and that they and their family were engaging in improper relationships with commoners, okay? with, with people of unlike blood, that for some reason God had said, don't do this. Okay? Once again, doesn't matter. The relationship was not supposed to happen regardless. Third possibility. The sons of God would be the godly Sethites, okay, the follower, the, the sons and people of Seth, okay? And the daughters of man are the Cainites, okay, the the people that came from Cain. When that whole split happened and you got all the lineages that come down, it is possible that this is interpreted interpreted as the godly sons of Seth and the worldly or earthly daughters of Cain. Okay? And that they were engaging in relationship together, which also was not supposed to happen. Okay? God had made that clear. So that is a possibility. Once again, 
Doesn't matter. Relationship wasn't supposed to happen. Okay? So the key here is that God had intended for a specific relationship to happen on earth. And it wasn't happening. And they were knowingly, sinfully engaging in relationships that God had said not to engage in. That's the point. Don't get hung up on the, on the details. Okay? Now, apparently these relationships were really important because it would take a lot to get God to the point where he regrets creating humanity, wants to wipe them off the face of the earth and start over again. Okay? So apparently these relationships were extremely important. Now, another important aspect of this is that the language that is used is that these relationships were normal. They were happening. They were culturally acceptable. They were accepted by the people. They were part of who the people were. This goes to show you just how much further humanity had fallen. Not only were they having relationships that they weren't supposed to be engaged in, but they had become culturally acceptable among the people. Meaning that their culture had gone so far down that they didn't even recognize sin anymore when it was happening. It just was normal. Which, if you look around, we see many manifestations of that in our current world. Okay, things that we as believers would consider to be sin are just becoming normal, acceptable life in many areas of the world. Okay, this is not above humanity to achieve this level of sinfulness. We do it all the time. And we have gotten there, they had gotten there at this point in time, and it had becoming, become so perverse that God just didn't see any way to reconcile it but to start over again. Now, God was furious at mankind. In verse 3... It says that, that he was he was that his spirit would not will not contend with man forever. Okay? He was so upset, not at man, but humankind. What they had become, the people that they were, the culture, the idea of being a human. It wasn't just individual people sinning. He was so upset at what had become human that he thought the only way to start over again was just to wipe everything clean and try again. Okay? It wasn't this little thing of, oh, well, these people sinned, or you know, if we could just you know, put a stop to the whole relationship thing, or if we could just stop stealing or stop... It had nothing to do with the individual sin. The language here speaks of God being upset with humankind. The idea of humanity. Okay? The very essence of who the people were. And it says, my spirit will not contend with man forever. Now, the language that is used here is not cannot, or it probably won't, or it won't last. The language here is will not contend. That's a decision that God is making, that my spirit will no longer contend with man forever. Okay? This is an active, conscious decision on, on the part of God. Many people look at this, many scholars look at this and say, oh, God has a weakness. He can't contend with sin. It's not a weakness, it's a decision. He's chosen not to contend with sin. And it also says, for he is mortal. Okay? For he is but flesh, some translations say. Once again, it says that it wasn't the sin that was happening anymore. It was the fact that they were humans that made them sinful. They had gone that far. The fact that you were born human made you perverse, sinful people. Outside of actions altogether. Okay, humanity had fallen so incredibly far. Now this was before God had put into action the whole idea of the gospel and Jesus Christ and things like that. So as far as we know at this point in time, this was the only option. Start over again. 
There was no sort of relationship that could redeem humanity from the place it had gone. Humanity was in a terrible, terrible state. Now it also says in verse 3 that his days shall be 120 years. Another very controversial thing. Does this mean that after this section of scripture that humans' lifetime were limited to 120 years? Okay? A lot of people believe that that is true. That that's actually what happened. That they were living for hundreds of years. Noah lived for 600 and something years. Um, you know, all these people in the past that had lived for hundreds of years. Methuselah for 926 or something years. It was hundreds of years. Okay? Think of what you could imagine. A, life, a lifespan of 100 years. Now, God had said for some reason that they will be 120 years after this. Doesn't matter, okay? Don't get caught up on this. Don't get into a debate on this. Don't waste your time on it, okay? Because what happens is nobody knows. Nobody actually knows, okay? A lot of people also believe, the other probably more widely accepted belief of this, is that that was God setting the egg timer to say, okay, the earth is destroyed in 120 years. I will give them 120 years. Now, it's not actually destroyed in 120 years. It's actually a little bit shorter than that. So people are saying, oh, well, did God change his mind? Can God change his mind? Can he? There's, there's, there's a controversy around every possible corner in here, okay? So please, stick with me here, okay? Doesn't matter, okay? So what if God changed his mind? He's God, okay? Change his mind whenever he wants. He can do that. We don't understand it, and we can't say that it's not possible based on our understanding, or an ununderstanding, not understanding, because he's God. So it doesn't matter. Okay? God set some sort of a timer here, some sort of a limitation that was as a punishment or retribution of the sin that was happening. Period. Okay? If you're British, I would say full stop. Okay? Now, Nephilim. Who were the Nephilim? Okay? Nephilim, another controversial thing, only noted one other time in Scripture in Numbers. Okay? And it says something about them, um, the, the descendants of Anak were Nephilim. There's some off-the-cuff reference to them. Okay? Who were these Nephilim that were obviously a big deal? He went out of his way to have a whole sentence, essentially, saying the Nephilim existed in those days. It says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God went to the daughters of man and had children by them, they were the heroes of old men of renown. Okay? Were these Nephilim the sons of God and daughters of man, was this their offspring? Was this a separate entity? Was this another deity? Was this another divine being? Were these more fallen angels? Doesn't matter, okay? The point is, the Nephilim were there. That was important, okay? The other references in scripture don't describe these people as nice, happy-go-lucky, friendly people, okay? So my interpretation of it is the point that they're even mentioned there is to say that humans have gone so far that Nephilim were in existence at this point in time. Okay? They were terrible, horrible beings. Okay? And the Nephilim you know after the flood are the same as the ones that you know before the flood. Okay? That's essentially what this means. Now, it doesn't matter. Because the point is, is that every single point in the scripture has gone to make it seem more and more, to make another point that human has fallen so far that. Humanity has fallen so far that. Humanity has fallen so far that. 
So what I'm going to take this as is another explanation of just how far humans have fallen. Okay? There's another argument that they're actually the offspring of these deities and children. Now, if you believe in that particular interpretation of the scripture before it, that's very possible. That is probably the most logical explanation for who the Nephilim were, meaning that they were kind of half deity, half not. Um, these heroes of old, these, these men of renown, men of name, that they would say that they were people that, that were huge heroes of the day. Now, another thing that this is important that this tells us is that humanity had gone one more step to accepting sin. These, these, these people that were offspring of a sinful relationship were now heroes of the day. They were renowned. They were men of name. Regardless of where they came from, something had happened, and these sinful people that are never portrayed in any good light have become heroes and men of renown in the day. That goes us to show one more step of how far humanity had fallen. Now it also says the word whenever, the way that that's translated, the, the word in there, that means it's kind of this ongoing, regular accounting. Okay, this, this uh, see here, do, 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 do. When the sons of God went to the daughters, or in some translations, whenever the sons of God went to the daughters of man. This meaning that this was a sin that happens regularly, that has happened for a while, that will probably happen again in the future, that happens in a continual basis of some kind. This isn't something that was looked down upon that happened once or twice. Um, these, these were people that were a regular part of society, and there, there could have been who knows how many of them. Okay? It wasn't this small, little, isolated group of people. It was a group of people that were an offspring of some sort of sin. Period. Okay? And in this day and age... That was just not okay. And the people had accepted them. The people had accepted them as being part of who they were. And not only did they accept them, but they, they worshipped them. Okay? They idolized them. They were heroes. We do this very much so in our modern day culture. We take people that are not good examples, and just because they're a good musician, would love to be like them. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> You'd like to be a good singer like them. That's pretty much it. Okay? There's a lot of people in our culture nowadays that we should not be trying to follow in the footsteps of just because they have a singular good talent. These people were the same way. They had a talent. They were heroes. They were good warriors. But, should have, but never should have been people that we were attempting to follow in the footsteps of. Never should have been people that were idolized or worshipped. Now, going on further, okay, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all of the time. Okay? Verse 5. How would you like that as your epitaph, your, your tombstone writing? Okay? Okay? How great man's wickedness on earth had become that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Okay? That was essentially the tag that had been given to humanity. Only evil all the time. That's it. There was no good, no light, no grace, no happiness in, in Christ's love. There was, there was nothing. It was only bad. I haven't met somebody in my recent past that I would identify quite that badly. <laughs> okay? That is a heck of a description. 
That, that is really something you would say about somebody you were really not happy with. Okay? There's something to be said for, ah, oh, he wasn't the best father. Or, ah, oh, he wasn't the best friend. Or, eh, you know, he didn't do this well. Or, you know, he could have been a better leader. Or maybe, you know, he's terrible with money. But only evil all the time is really saying something. Okay? Humanity had gone beyond repair. There was no fixing it. But change was needed. It says that the Lord was grieved that he made man, or the Lord regretted, some translations say, that he made man on earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe all mankind who I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. I'm going to use the word regret, because I want to just get this out of the way. Okay? I looked it up on Wikipedia. Okay? I know on very good account that the word regret, I also looked it up other places too, does not mean wish that I would not have done, as we take it to mean in our current modern day language. Okay? I regret doing that. It kind of means I wish I didn't do it. Okay? That's not what it means. It means here that, that he felt sorrow for, or that he was unhappy that it happened. It, it means he regretted it. He, he's not necessarily unhappy that he did it, but he regrets that it happened. Okay? So here, just to wipe everything, all that from your mind, God, there's no discussion here as to whether God changed his mind. Okay? Because he felt sorrow for. He was grieved by. He regretted in the sense that he just wished that it wouldn't have gone the way that it did. Okay? But there's nothing there about God changing his mind. Now, another important thing here is that it says that he was filled with pain. Now, this statement just does not do the actual text any sort of justice. Okay? Really in a much closer sense of the word, it should say, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. He felt bitterly indignant about it. Okay? The word that is used here is the word that is used to convey the most powerful of possible negative emotions. Bitterly indignant. Okay? This is, this is rage and just anguish. Just absolute pain on the deepest possible level. God felt this amazing, just unimaginable pain at what humanity had done to itself. Okay, God had feelings. He's not this unfeeling God that just creates things and wishes we would do something with it. He follows us. He's an active God. And when we do things wrong, He feels pain. And it says in Scripture that the, the sin of one kind is just like a sin of any other kind in God's eyes. And so anytime we sin, we can imagine this bitter indigna indignation. Okay? I just, I can't even comprehend the amount of pain God was feeling. This is the type of pain that causes people to commit suicide. This is the type of pain that causes people to end their families, to cut off relationships. Okay, this is, this is the most powerful kind of pain. This is the type of pain that Job experienced. This is terrible, horrible pain that God was experiencing. And it was because of our sinfulness. It was because of how humanity 
had gone bad. Now this, the, just to give you a likeness of words here, this, this bitter indignation was used as a descriptor when, when Dinah's brothers felt this way after she was, she was raped, okay, later on in Genesis. Jonathan, when he heard um, Saul was trying to kill David, okay, same emotion. David, when he heard of Absalom's death, it also says a deserted wife feels this way. Okay, we're talking about extreme pain. God hates our sin. It pains him to the greatest possible extent. Now, what's difficult about this is that the person that is offended has no control over this kind of pain. They can't cut it off. They can't make it not happen. Okay, anytime they feel this pain, this is just something that happens to them. Okay, God felt this pain as a design of his system. The, the, the offendee has no control. It is pain that is being inflicted on an innocent person for no reason of their own, for nothing that they did. The worst type of pain. Somebody dying a terrible death when they didn't deserve it. Language like this was used when, Jesus, when God turned his back on Jesus when he was killed. Okay, this is strong language. We had gone a long ways. And at this point in time, we realize that sin, humanity, had reached a critical mass. That there was just absolutely no further that could be gone. It talks about the most terrible types of corruption and malice. The rich and wealthy taking advantage of the needy and the poor. And God says, the world will be reduced to a watery chaos. Okay? A new start. Okay? Your computer gets to that point where there's just no helping it. What do you do? Turn it off and on again. That's what you do. It's the same way. There's just no helping it. The only thing you can do is just reboot. Find good stock, which he did in Noah, which we're about to talk about. And then just restart all over again. Now that is the pain of sin. I wanted to address that first because I hope you understand the true pain and anguish that we cause God when we sin. Regardless of the translation, regardless of the controversy, who cares? The point is, we sin, we cause God pain. We took humanity to a place it had never been before and the only way to fix it was to just start over again. We had gone a long ways. But there's hope. Starting in verse 9. Actually, starting in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both of them, both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress or gopher wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18, for it, within 18 inches of the top. Put a door on the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. 
I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the, he- under the heavens, every creature that has made the, the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant. Sorry, but I will establish my covenant with you. A lot of translations say reestablish or reconfirm my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves around along the ground will come to you and be kept alive. You are to take each, you are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God had commanded him. The world had gone to a terrible place. Humanity had reached a point of absolute no return. And we see once again, just like in, it seems, every grace story that is in the Bible, that there is always hope. Always. And we see these, this in people's lives. Every time somebody makes a decision for Jesus Christ, Christ, they do the same type of faith and obedience that Noah experiences here. Now, Noah was told to build this ship. Okay? Composition, reed and gopher wood, most likely. Cypress, um, as some people translate it, because they don't really know what gopher wood actually is. That was kind of a name of the time, and they're not real sure actually what that is. But it was probably made of reed and gopher wood, a length of 135 meters by 22 meters by 13 meters with a steering system of nothing but faith. Okay? It was a box that floats with a roof on it. Okay? There was no rudder. There was no steering wheel. Okay? Nothing. It was simply just a floating box. Now, other ships of this time, just so you can understand the true faith that Noah really experienced here, the normal ship of that time was no longer than 10 meters. Okay? The longest ones... The biggest ones that they can even understand existed in that time when Noah built the ship was 53 meters by 8 by 4 meters. and was powered by rudder and wind. And they were made of nothing but animal skin and reeds. They hadn't figured out really how to do big timber logs and make boats out of that yet. They just didn't have the technology for it. When God came to Noah, he was not only asking him an amazing feat, but he was asking him the impossible. Okay? Something that Noah had never done before. Noah is not a shipbuilder. Okay? He's not. Not to mention he's 500 years old. Okay? And he's going to spend the next 100 years building that. That's what God's asking of him. Now to put that in context, God comes to you and says, I'd like you to stop doing ministry. Okay? And I want you to go build school buses for the next 20 years. Okay? That's what I want you to do. To make a change like that is just... What? It's mind-boggling. I have no experience in my life that really... compares with that. Okay? To, To make the impossible. Noah was asked great faith. Now it says here... that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. This tells us two very, very important things. A, Noah walked with God. There's only one other person in Scripture that walked with God. We found out about him last week. It was Enoch. 
Okay, there was other people that walked before God, but no other person that walked with him other than Enoch. So Noah clearly had a good relationship, a good communication with God. It also says that he was blameless among the people of his time. Okay? It's one thing to have a close relationship with God. It's another thing to be blameless among sinful humans. That really says something special. Okay? I know many people that I would consider to be great men of faith that still have a lot of humans that just can't stand them. Okay? And many times it's because they're great men of faith. Somehow Noah had pulled off this crazy relationship where he was able to not only be an amazing man of faith, but he was also a man blameless among the people of his day. That is truly a feat. Probably a a feat only possible with a proper relationship with Christ, with God. Now, the important thing that we have to understand about Noah is the only characteristic of Noah that is highlighted in Scripture is his obedience. Okay? He obeyed. That is his characteristic. Okay? Righteousness, all that stuff comes from the obedience that he did. Noah doesn't actually ever say a word in Genesis. Okay? He's not quoted. He's just a character that exists. Okay? He's not a rich man. He's not a wealthy man. He's not a man of, of great power or authority. He's not, he's not one of these idolized heroes that we learn about. He's not half deity. Okay? Noah is just a simple guy that does what he's told. And he does what he's told to the extent that he is going to be, he has been chosen as the only righteous stock for refilling the earth again. Now that's, that's something to write home about. That's something to tell your grandkids about. Okay, That's important. I, I can't imagine my life ever being described that way. Okay, Noah's epitaph on his tombstone was that he was a righteous man that walked with God and he was blameless among the people of his time. Now that is something to write home about. That's something to say, God has done a work in my life. Now, among all of the sin in the world, you can imagine, it's hard to be a righteous person now. You read about the days that Noah lived in, and he was living amongst the sinful of the sinful of the sinful, and somehow, still being the most righteous of the righteous of the righteous. How is that possible? We say it's too difficult. We say it's too hard. Culture has taken us down a path that we can't recover from. What will we do? The internet is here. I can't possibly be a good Christian. Okay? Noah did it. And it sounds like he had a much harder time than any of us have. Now, it's not getting easier. I will agree with that. Okay? As time goes on, it is getting much more difficult to be this person of God. I looked up some, uh, some statistics. Um, what kind of an administrator would I be if I didn't have some t- statistics for you? From the Gallup poll and the Census Bureau of America. Okay? The millennial generation, all of you born from roughly 1980 to the year 2000. Okay, raise your hand. Anybody? Okay, quite a few. Okay, all the young people in here. Okay? 
the millennial generation has been and is recorded as the most demanding culture there is or has been in history. Okay? That being due to technology and modern efficiency of business and we get everything right now when we want it, etc. An increased sense of me, which most people in medicine would say, that's wonderful. Except it's not. Okay? Because with an increased sense of me, you lose the sense of you. Okay? That's, that's our generation, the millennials. Okay? Also, a distrust of the man like we've never seen before. Anything institutionalized, anything governmental. Okay? Our generation doesn't trust it. Why? Because we live in a culture of mistrust and lies. We see it every day on TV. We see it on the Internet. Our lives, half of everybody, half of all the families in America have a divorced relationship in it. Okay? We live in lies. Of course it's going to be that way. Of course that's how we see it. There's also been more publicized scandals ever. All of the people that we idolize and look up to are involved in this sin. And so we think it's okay. Here's one that's really, really important. Okay? Union membership for the millennial generation has been cut down by two-thirds. Okay? Big deal, right? Um... We have more opportunities than ever. We can travel where our parents never had the possibility to travel. I'm standing here in Thailand at the age of 25. Okay? That didn't happen 20 years ago. That didn't happen 40 years ago. It just wasn't possible. I can hop on a plane and in 30 hours be from Denver, Colorado to Chiang Mai, Thailand. That just wasn't possible. We have more technology. We're actually we're, we're the most educated demographic. Okay, more people are going to college. More people are graduating from high school. We have higher degrees. Master's degrees are just becoming normal for our generation. We have more information. And you know what this has caused? We know it all. We know everything. Okay, we have all that information at our fingertips, and I know everything. And if I don't know it, I'll ask Google. Okay. That's what our generation has become. That doesn't sound like a generation that's becoming more obedient and more dependent and more faithful. Our personal relationships, as I said, more than half of all the Generation Y parents in the West are divorced. Here's something interesting, though. Even though that's, that's the case, Generation Y parents are spending more time with their kids than ever in the past. It says that 65% of Generation Y eats at least one meal per day with at least one parent. That's an increase. I suppose that's good. I don't really understand why. Um, according to Gallup poll, more than 90% of teens report being very close to their parents. 90%! In 1974, more than 40% of baby boomers said that they would be better off without their parents. Okay? Technology has changed. More than 40% of all Generation Y communication, 40% of all Generation Y communication is done electronically, not face-to-face. 31% of all 5- to 7-year-olds are online. 5- to 7-year-olds. 77% of all 15- to to 17-year-olds are online. This is the first generation where women are on average more highly educated than men. Woohoo! Yeah. Go women. Okay? That's exciting! 
But at the same time, it just tells that we're flopping everything upside down, okay? The world is changing at an amazing speed. Another problem with this is religious viewpoints, okay? Our culture is adopting this idea of orthodoxy a la carte, okay? That's what they're terming it, meaning that we get to just pick and choose what we want, okay? Because we're so educated and we have so much information and we're so intelligent and have so much life experience, we just get to pick and choose parts of religions the way we want to. Less than 25% of people subscribe to a doctrinal belief system. They'll say they're Christian, but they couldn't tell you in any sort of what way. No religious affiliation. That, that thing has doubled. Number of Generation Y that would describe themselves as secular has doubled. 44% of Generation Y call themselves religious. Of all religions. 35% call themselves spiritual, but not religious. And 18% neither. Okay? Those are big numbers. That's a lot of people. It's not getting any easier. As technology and culture move on, it's becoming more and more difficult to be obedient because we know more. We have more information. We think we know more. The problem is, is Generation Y has it con is convinced, I being one of them, that we can replace knowledge with experience. Okay? Whereas the baby boomers were all about experience. That's your thing. Life experience. Get a job. Get experience. That's important. Baby boomers said, I don't need experience. I have Google. Okay? I have Facebook. It's becoming more difficult to be obedient because we think we know more. For those of you that have kids in this generation, this is a serious problem. I see it in my own family. I see it in families that I am close to. This, this whole idea is just bringing us further away from the goal. For those of you that are in this generation, listen to what I am saying. Okay? It's getting more difficult, which means you have to try harder. Noah is our example. I want to take you to some scripture in John 14. John 14, 12, and 13. It says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. What he's talking about here is belief. Obedience. If you obey if you have the relationship, if you walk with God, the world is open to you. If you choose not to do that, there's nothing but death in your future. That's it. Regardless of whether you're a baby boomer or Generation Y, Generation X, doesn't matter. Okay? If you obey, good will happen. If you disobey, bad will happen. Period. That's the lesson of Noah. That's it. Plain and simple. Right down the middle. First couple verses, bad. Second couple verses, good. Okay? Noah was good. Other people were bad. That's it. If we choose good, there will be good. If we choose bad, there will be bad. That's just the way that it is. Now, most people in this position, standing in front of a group of people like you in the West, would never say that. 
Because obedience is terrible. Obedience is scary. You can't have a congregation based on obedience. Okay? You'll just scare everybody away. That means you have to do things. That means I'm taking control of your life. It doesn't mean any of that. It means God is taking control of your life. I'm begging you, please, do not go down this path. Let God take control of your life. Walk with God. Walk with Him. Be with Him. Communicate with Him. Be in prayer with Him. Read His scripture. Walk with God. So that you can be a beacon of light amongst horrible sin. That's what we are called to do. God is a covenant God. He has made us promises and He will stick to those promises. And if you are a righteous man or woman, He has promised you greatness in His kingdom and His love and His faith. He, he has promised you provision. He has promised you a future in Him. If you choose the other path, you will get exactly what He promised. Humanity took their choice. God wiped them clean. This is the choice that we've been given. Now we have this wonderful tool. We have, we have Jesus. And unfortunately, many of us look at Him as a tool. Okay? He's something to benefit us. We've even taken the most amazing thing that God has ever given us, Jesus, His living covenant, and we've taken it and we've made it into a sinful relationship. We've taken it and we've made Him serve us. That's not the way it's supposed to work. Please, be obedient to whatever God calls you to do. Just go in faith, blind faith if you have to. Many of you wouldn't be here without that. And I ask you, if you made that decision once, what stops you from making it again? If you chose blind faith once, when God challenges you again, why say no? It worked out for you this time. I'd like to read for you one last thing from Andrew Murray. Yesterday, when we, a group of us got together and prayed, this really kind of spoke to me and really, I don't know, got me thinking about this. Is that going to be okay? Okay, quickly. The Lord gave the wonderful promise of the free use of His name before the Father in connection with doing His works. It is the disciple who gives himself wholly to live for Jesus' work and kingdom, for His will and honor, to whom the power will come to appropriate the promise. He who tries to grasp the promise when he wants something solely for himself will be disappointed because he is trying to make Jesus the servant of his own comfort. Noah served Jesus, not the other way around. Noah served God. He walked with God. It didn't work the other way. Don't make him a servant of your own comfort. Be a servant of his. That's what I'm asking. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much, Lord, for just giving us the opportunity to to understand the past, Lord, so that we can hopefully have a future in you. Lord, I pray that these words will not just fall dead on these ears, Lord, but that they will 
leave this place and just take your word and be obedient. Lord, I pray that you just bless these people as we go on. Lord, I pray all these things. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.